All right, what's going on guys? So today I'm chatting with Paulo Need and we're gonna be talking all about deloads, tapering, peaking uh, for strength athletes. This is something I know a lot of people ask me about and it's definitely a point of contention because there's a lot of different strategies out there and I, I'd like to create a little bit more of a conversation so, so we can kind of create a little bit more context for your specific situation. So uh, first off, Paul, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, man. It's great to have you here. Could you... Uh, just kind of intro yourself for people who maybe aren't familiar with who you are. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Paul O'Need. I uh, am the head coach over at Master Athletic Performance. Um, I also am a head coach over at Coaches Corner University, which is a project we just started. I've been uh, powerlifting for the better part of 11 years now. Um, best lifts in competition are 805 squat, 430 bench, and a 725 deadlift. Um, all done unequipped. And I've been coaching powerlifting for about 10 years as well, uh, pretty much since I started. And my background in the coaching sphere was primarily collegiate strength. So I worked at the University of South Florida, the University of Tampa, Robert Morris University, and then up here at Queens in, in Kingston. Um, and just uh, focusing primarily online right now, I do work a day job as a functional rehab specialist uh, for a disability insurance company. And along with uh, the coaching and I live up here in Ottawa, Ontario. Just to kind of dive right into it, like how do you actually structure deloads into your athletes programs? Like do you have predetermined time sets or is there a specific way that you determine when an athlete needs to kind of take time off? So it really depends on the athlete themselves. Uh, I do have some athletes where the deloads are scheduled and that's primarily due to their preference. They, knowing that they have this predetermined deload within a four week or three week period. They're able to plan ahead, train as hard as they need to, because they know they're going to have that week off for others. I will do it more on the fly. I program for my, all of my athletes one week at a time. Uh, so if we need to make adjustments, it's very easy. There's constant communication back and forth. So we're to always talking about how they're feeling, their sleep, their stress, their nutrition. Uh, and then we're keeping an eye on how their performance is trending. Uh, if we're using more of a on the fly type of strategy, we're kind of keeping an eye on things. Are they able to hit their volume benchmarks? Are they able to maintain the prescribed RPE? Um, are they continuing to sleep well, eat well, manage stress? As soon as any type of indicator will pop up, say, hey, maybe it's time to back off. The biggest mistake I see a lot of young coaches making is when we say deload, they automatically assume it's a week off or a week where no adaptation is going to take place. Where reality, all that we're doing is, is we're just tapping on that brake pedal, allowing yourself to catch up to your levels of fatigue, and then we can get back to training again. Um, so I would say that the majority of my athletes are on a week by week basis, uh, but I do have some that I plan it out. Another instance where I would plan out a deload is if we were prepping for a meet and we had some abnormal number of weeks. I might throw in a deload in the middle to make sure I had the appropriate amount of time to peak at the end. And so how would you determine uh, that specific time course? Like I know Mike Desure has kind of like a, a time to peak approach where he just trains people until they seem to kind of see a consistent and reliable decrease in performance. And then he's like, okay, that's week six for you. That's your kind of time to peak. 
right? And so do you have kind of a process like that or anything to, to kind of determine where you would put that deload um, in for an athlete who does have me coming up? So I've thought a lot about, so I've read up on his emerging strategies approach. Um, I do implement, I had already, a lot of the things that these you know, named coaches implement or, or and have developed are simply just contextual models that they've put names to. If you're coaching someone, you're already using an emerging strategies approach because you should be tracking certain indicators along the way. Where I struggle with that approach is they tend to train into a meet. They tend to, there's very little deload, there's very little taper involved. So the ability to super compensate into the meet is much, I don't think it's taken advantage of as well as it could. Um, to me, the only reliable way to know what an athlete's time to peak is, is to try and peak them and to see if they perform better than their training numbers. In an ideal scenario, I want my athletes' competition numbers to far surpass their training numbers because in training, they're carrying fatigue. In a meet, they shouldn't. Um, so there's, there's one way. Just work for an athlete for with an work with an athlete for an extended amount of time. Keep notes. Make sure that you know what worked, what it didn't, and and make sure that you're measuring these variables along the way. The way I like to do it is I will put indicator lifts into their program at certain points, and then work back and see if we allowed enough time for them to to achieve those numbers. So something like a repetition max put a repetition max at week four of a progression versus versus progressing them a little bit slower and having them at week five, which, which created the biggest uh, yield in terms of uh, maximal strength or, or performance on that rep max. Or you could put in an actual competition sub-maximal single. So you put in, hey, okay, at this point, we're going to do a single at eight and depending on how that single compares to an estimated one at max, we know that how, how our progression is going, that's where we're headed. Well, how long did I take to get to that single at eight? Was that enough time? Maybe I try it later in the block next time. Maybe I try it earlier in the block the time after that. I tend to program more in a concurrent style. So it allows me more, more room and more variation to throw that in rather than just progressing someone linearly over the course of, you know, a hypertrophy block or a strength block or a power block. Um, yeah. So I, for me, it's about, it's about reliability and I don't necessarily have a defined time to peak because the other thing that I've realized, like I've been coaching, for a very long time at this point, I've worked with hundreds of athletes. No indicator is reliable time after time after time. And that's what makes this so fun because I have always believed and I, I will always believe that training is as much art as it is science. So how I manipulate these numbers and variables this time for this athlete may work fantastic. But if I use the same strategies of a, a, a meet from now or two meets from now, it might be completely disastrous. Well, what's changed? The athletes changed. Everything is always changing. They may have gotten a new job. They may have had a child. They may have put a hundred pounds on their total. All of these things affect their ability to recover, to delay fatigue or to uh, decay fatigue and to peak. So these need to be accounted for within the programming. 
That's why I'm a firm believer in this week by week approach. And we kind of take things as they come, collect our data. And then when it comes time to meet time, we're simply playing the best odds that we're timing it correctly, right? Like there is no real way to predict what's going to work. And this, you know, idea of reliable outcomes, unless you're training into the meat and not deloading at all, I don't think there's a way to do that. And so I just kind of wanted to, to touch on one of the points that you mentioned, because I definitely don't want there to be any sort of misunderstanding of what you meant by concurrent training. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on how you implement concurrent right. yeah. programming? So I get why you would ask that. So most people think concurrent, they think West side, but the reality is uh, concurrent training is simply uh, the progression of multiple adaptations within the same training block. And the research is quite clear that if you prioritize and use specific training stimuli within a block, within a period with the appropriate volumes, you're able to increase multiple attributes at the same time. So within a, within a week for me, Athletes will do, st will do some heavy stuff, they will do some fast stuff, and they will do some lighter, more hypertrophy-focused stuff. The goal is to bring up multiple attributes at a time. The emphasis on each of those stuffs, which I'm using as just kind of, you know, I'm making little bunny ears, right, um, is the emphasis on which one is most important is going to depend where we are with regards to a competition. So the heavy stuff is likely going to be competition specific movements. While we're far away from a competition, that emphasis on those movements will be much less. And we'll be focusing on building more muscle, more hypertrophy stimulus. As we approach the meet, we might focus more of our attention on that heavy stuff. And, and I like to look at it as a pie, right? So um, each, each attribute has a piece of the pie and depending on where you are within your yearly plan or within your, uh, you know, off-season, in-season plan, what percentage of the pie is made up of each attribute. But the goal is with a concurrent model is to bring up multiple attributes at the same time. As far as that goes, like what would be, I know we're kind of going off topic a little bit, but That's okay. I would That's like good. you to kind of maybe expand on something like speed training, because I feel like a lot of the times when people talk about speed training, it's almost like the outcome versus what people think the outcome actually is seems to be pretty different. Like there seems to be a pretty big disconnection for why someone would implement speed training for a strength-based athlete. Um, could you kind of touch on that? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at, when you look at the lifts, you have to realize that it's all physics, right? So the, probably the easiest example is the deadlift. So in order to begin a deadlift, to break the bar from the floor, you have to break inertia, which means the rate of force development has to be, um, has to be equal to, sorry, the rate of force development has to be appropriate for the amount of stability you have in your system to allow yourself to pull on the bar long enough for it to break the floor. So it stands to reason that the faster I can develop force, the easier it will be for me to break that bar off the floor and the shorter amount of time that will take the shorter amount of time it will take the less demand of stability on my system to hold positions for that period of time. So in an, in an instance where, and this is especially common in the sumo deadlift in an instance where you have a very slow lifter who develop, even if they are able to develop a tremendous amount of force, 
because leverages are so poor off the floor in a sumo deadlift, they cannot develop force fast enough to move a load that they should be able to lift. What you'll see is the system will break down. So you'll get a break in the back or, or uh, a movement in the hips that may not be advantageous to the lockout. So they'll break the bar very slowly off the ground and then there'll be some acceleration and then they won't be able to lock it up. The reality is, is if you train that lifter to develop force faster through some form of, you, you know, you could use the dynamic effort method. You could use uh, kettlebell swings or plow metrics. So there's, an, there's a number of ways we can use to develop speed. But that lifter simply by being not even in, increasing the amount of force they can produce. So not even increasing their strength, just getting them to produce that strength faster. We can get them lifting heavier weights from a maximal perspective. And that's the goal, right? Is to bring up an element of your game that is lacking and preventing you from lifting those maximal weights that you should be able to. So the way I implement a lot of my speed work, because I, I don't train equipped lifters, I, I, that's a lie, I have one. Um, the way I implement it is usually with technique work. So I'll do, uh, for example, I'll have an athlete pull from a deficit as their main movement, but then they might do some technique work at a lower percentage, but we'll throw, we'll put on some, some bands or some chains to teach them to accelerate through that sticking point. The goal is technique, but by increasing the rate of force production through the addition of the bands and chains, we can get an additional stimulus out of that as well. The difference in the way the dynamic effort method in terms of West side is, is adapted versus something, something you would do with a raw lifter is you have to go heavier with a raw lifter. You have to get heavier. You have to go heavier to get the same adaptations. Um, which is a really interesting notion uh, because you would think the opposite, right? If you're lifting heavier weights, your dynamic effort should be done heavier. But the reality is because we're out of our equipment, we need a little bit more stimulus to get that adaptation. Um, and it can be implemented in a number of different ways. You could do your dynamic effort first. You could do it weekly. You could do it every other week. You could do it purely like every three weeks, if you're doing like an undulating wave, uh, there's a, a number of different ways it can be implemented and it may not be required for everybody. Like I personally don't do any speed work for my bench press. I don't find there's a carryover. So I stopped doing it. You might find for yourself that there's a great carryover for speed work on your bench press. By all means, keep doing it. But that's where it comes back back to what I was saying before about tracking, tracking indicators and, and measuring your variables and knowing what's working or not. Yeah. I definitely think that speed work is something that I hear a lot of people talk about, but I'm not sure that as many people either implement it at all or implement it correctly, you know, for, for those reasons, right. <laughs> I'm glad you kind of brought up a lot of those points about RFD versus actual velocity of the bar at max loads. Yeah. And there's, that's where an, under, an understanding of basic physics is, is required at this point. But at, at the same time, there is also a lot of ways you can implement speed work, right? You can, you can throw in, you know, some, some overload, some isometrics right into some kind of full lifts. You can do uh, like a couplet pairing a plyometric with a competition lift. You could do accommodating resistance. You could do lifts without accommodating resistance. 
there's so many, like you could do even French contrast training to get a speed stimulus, right? It, it doesn't, the way in which you implement it is only as important as the data you're going to get out of it and how you can use that data to continue progressing yourself moving forward. So when we're looking at deloads, uh, I know a lot of the times training blocks are kind of structured or microcycles typically structured the length of the week. And that's more a matter of convenience than actual, well, actually any, any valid reason, right? Beyond totally. convenience. And so yeah. structuring your deloads, how do you determine the length of the deload? Like, is it a two day thing? Is it a three day thing? Is it a two week thing? Like how does that actually look and how do you determine that time for a given athlete? So that's a really, I love that you asked that question because it, it plays into like how we, how we program in general, right? So most training programs, when you look at it, the traditional model would be uh, intensity or diff, we'll, we'll, call, we'll call it difficulty, right? Because the volume could go up or the weights could go up, right? So if the difficulty goes up each, each week, so week one is a little easier than week two, which is a little easier than week three, week four you end up accumulating fatigue in a linear fashion and you have to decay that. If you progress yourself and accumulate so much fatigue that you can't decay it in a week, well, maybe you need to extend it. And that that's a conversation and a communication thing. I've seen two week deloads before. Um, the key with a deload is always, you don't want to decay so much fatigue that you end up decaying fitness. So you don't want to lose any adaptation which means it can't be too long. And that plays into like, is your athlete enhanced? How strong are they? All of these like gender training age, all of these things will play a factor in that. But if you program in a way where the difficulty doesn't rise every week and it undulates back and forth, maybe you do, you know, rise, rise, back off, rise, rise, back off. And that back off isn't necessarily a deload. It could just be a change in stimulus or you run like a week A and a week B, like the more you undulate and vary the training, the longer you can go between deloads because you're not accumulating fatigue in a linear fashion. The, <clears throat> the length of a deload for me is usually the length of a microcycle. It's just the easiest way to plan. If you need to extend that, typically what I would do is I would keep the same number of training days, but I would have the athlete add in rest days in between. So say you're training four days a week and you're like on, off, on, off, on, on, off, seven. Um, <laughs> I would simply just say, okay, instead of having those couple days in a row, throw in another rest day, you've elongated it to eight days. And that's, that's again, it comes down to communication with your athlete. Um, a lot, I know some coaches use like a questionnaire, like a weekly questionnaire. I speak to my athletes like four or five times a week. So, um, there's a lot of communication back and forth and, uh, and that's kind of what I would look at, but the easiest way is just one micro cycle. And if you have to add it, if you have to elongate it and make it two, the problem with making it two is you do risk decaying fitness. Yeah, and so that was actually the follow-up question that I had um, where an athlete might come back and they feel very recovered, they feel really good, but they just aren't quite pushing the weights that, that they were when they were experiencing a lot of fatigue, but their performance was still really high. 
Yeah. Do you have anything that you utilize outside of just really honing in on the, on the length of that deload? Um, do you utilize anything like maybe some plyometrics just to keep the neural drive higher or anything else that you might use to, to, to enhance their return to proper tra- proper training, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like productive training, like how, how quickly, like, cause it might, it might be as a situation in which say you have like five productive weeks of training, you deload, and then you have like an intro week and then maybe a first week. And then maybe that third week, you actually get back to meaningful training. So your deload actually affected three weeks of your training. The first is defining a deload is important. So it's a decrease in volume or a decrease in intensity or both to allow you to decay some fatigue and get back to progressing. So prior in an ideal world, you would not get to a point where there was a decrease in performance before you deloaded. Cause you want to catch, you want to catch that like high performance, high fatigue timeframe deload, and then hopefully get back to that high performance, but without the fatigue, that's perfect world. That's where we want to be. If you're planning your deloads, you can't necessarily do that. Um, but if you're playing it by ear, you, you, you catch on as to like, as, as with Mike T's, uh, emerging strategies, like you catch on to where these tend to be and you can have it in the back of your mind. Okay. This is the sixth week. They tend to perform really well. Let's try a seventh and see if we carry through. If not, we can always back off and deload. So you, you'll find these things and then you get into, okay, what does a deload actually mean for this person? And this is where I found that population indicators are really important. So with females, we know that in general, they can perform more work at higher intensities. They're more apt to do that. So that should play into the way we program. They'll typically be able to tolerate a little bit more volume. That should play into the way that we program. So their deloads do not have to be as severe for them to decay as much fatigue. So I would tend to reduce my intensity to a lesser degree for a female than I would for a male. And that would, that would also carry through to, I would tend to de, uh, deload my tested lifters to a lesser degree than I would my untested lifters. And then my untested lifters, I would deload to a lesser degree than I would my untested and enormous lifters. Because all of these factors, as you go up that chain, either increase the amount of fatigue you can accumulate or decrease the rate at which you decay fitness. And that's, that's where it comes into play. The longer you work with an athlete, the more data and the more information you're going to have. So if you try a deload strategy and they come back and they're lethargic, make a note of it. And then make the adjustment. So if they come back and feel lethargic, likely, likely the deload was too severe. So your next deload, maybe keep the intensity a bit higher. If they come back and they're just not, the, there's a difference too. And, and I think you, you kind of delineated it and I haven't mentioned it yet is, are they coming back and not performing because they haven't delayed their, decayed their fatigue? Or are they coming back and not performing because they've decayed their fatigue too much? And it's a fine line, right? Like it's really tough to know. So keeping your notes and knowing like, okay, this is the strategy that we use. This was the outcome. If they come back and they're, they're still too fatigued, well, you just back them off again. 
or you do an intro week where you kind of bring the volume up a little bit higher from the deload, but you don't necessarily get into productive loads yet. And then you ease them back in. Maybe that's just the strategy you have to use with that lifter because we're all different, right? I'm, I'm just spitballing ideas here at this point because there really is no right and wrong way to do it. But I've never used the plyometrics approach. I've never used, because like I'm not going to have a 275 pound dude jumping around. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe that would be for, for a smaller athlete that might be an appropriate way to do it. Um, and I think a big piece here is educating the client on what we're trying to accomplish and having their buy-in throughout the process. Because it can be really frustrating. You know, you're paying money for this person to monitor your training. And then you're like, bro, I suck. You know, like I, I want to educate my clients and be like, Hey, this is what we did. This is how you're feeling next time. This is how we're going to approach it. We'll see how you feel. And then we'll continue to refine our process just as much as you're learning the client. They're also learning you. And so keeping those, keeping that open line of communication, I think would be really important to, to maintaining their buy-in. Yeah. And actually that was something I was going to kind of touch on as well. Cause I, I think that's a really, really important point where, you know, it is an iterative process and people don't necessarily like to, to hear that. They, they like to hear you're the expert, you know, I trust you, you know, and it's like, well, we don't know. We've got some pretty good hypothesis, but at the same time, it is just kind of a learning process. Cause like you said, I mean, just the difference between men and women is, is huge. Like I've got some, some of my female athletes literally do 2.5 times the amount of volume that I would ever even conceivably do. Like, it's just absurd. And they're, they're just fine. And it's like, Hey, are you sore the next day? And it's like, no, not really. It's like, how, how is it even possible? So differences between men and women differences in like training age and size and level of experience and, you know, your actual absolute strength and all those things make a really big difference. And so absolutely, that, that absolutely is a huge component of, of coaching is that communication and just kind of making sure that it's like, Hey, this is not like, it is a science, but it is way more an art than a science in some cases. And this is one of those pieces where communication really, really can kind of bridge that gap between what we know objectively and how we implement that, uh, whether you're your own coach or you're working with a coach. So the other piece there that I think is really important is that as we, in, we're talking about involving them in the process, right? Right. Like involving them in, in providing their feedback and disclosing and having an open discourse in doing that, we're providing them agency. We're giving them the agency over their program to say, Hey, this is what I think is best. But if you think it's different, I want you to tell me, and I want you to tell me why, and then we can talk about how we can fix it or how we can make modifications. I don't want a group of people that are dependent on me to get their training in. I want them to be working with me because they feel that I add value for them, but I don't want them to be dependent. I want them to be learning. I want them to be able to go out on their own if they need to. Like, I don't want, the last thing I would want is, Hey coach, can you take a look at this? I don't know if I should go up or down based on my RPE. Oh man. Make a choice, make a choice because in the real world, you're going to have to make that choice. You're going to have to live with the consequences. Let's start in training and then let's get better at making choices. As a coach, I think that's 
creating a sense of agency and, and autonomy with your lifters is, is huge. And so one of the things that I wanted to, to get your input on as well is preserving fitness. Once you actually start reducing the volume as you're mm-hmm. kind of heading into, you know, peaking or a really intense uh, loading phases for strength. So how, how do you go about uh, doing that so they can still recover? They can still, you know, perform on a yeah. regular basis. So firstly, as I approach the meat, we're reducing. So we talked about that pie. So as we approach the meat, I would say the majority of that pie, about 80% of that pie is going to be for competition specific movements. So we're cutting out the assistance work. We're cutting out the additional volume and we're allocating as much of our adaptive reserve or recovery capacity to those main movements. For some people that will mean an increase in frequency. And so typically for my lighter lifters or my lower training age lifters, I will increase their frequency as we head into the meet but I'll decrease their volume on the specific day. And they'll still only have that one emphasis, one day of, of like heavier loading. The reason for doing that is to, is to refine technique and to make sure that we're not decaying any fitness. Um, especially when you are like, you see it more so with uh, untested lifters or smaller lifters. If they go a week without squatting, they may feel as though they've forgotten how to squat. They may like it, it, it's a skill, it's a neurological skill to display strength. So if we're talking about a neurological adaptation, the more exposures to that adaptation, the more exposures to that stimulus, the better we're going to be able to hold our fitness. So the one thing I do is I will increase frequency and have them touching that lift more often. The other is I will assign a day based on the information that we have where they will take their heaviest lift. Now, because we have multiple exposures per week, I can pick what day that of that week that exposure is going to be to correlate with when their meet's going to be. So their heaviest lift might be on the first of the three and then have a full week in between. So if their meet is in, so it's a Saturday, they might have a heavy lift, then they might have a submax lift later in the week, and then a heavier submax lift on the next Saturday, a lighter submax lift, and then the meet. Right. So we've had heavy, light, moderate, light meat. If they're more experienced, that last heavy lift just moves a bit further. Right. So it might go heavy, moderate, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, a little bit heavier, a little bit lighter. So it, it undulates in the intensity, but we time it up so that within a week they've had a heavier exposure, but not maximal in between their heaviest lift and the competition. Volume would continue to drop as we get down. And in the week of the meet, they're still training. They're not taking time off. They're still performing the lifts, albeit at like 50 or 60% for singles or doubles. And that will change. So the key is finding the appropriate number of exposures and timing that heaviest exposure with when the meat is and when you need them to peak. So that's, that would be frequency. The next is intensity. The intensity has to drop before you get to the meat, but it can't drop too much. So typically I use loosely use absolute numbers to dictate this. So if they're like a 700 pound squatter, 
I will probably have them taper two weeks. So they'll do their heaviest lift, something around an opener, then maybe last warm up, and then the meet. Any heavier than a 700 pound deadlift or a 700 pound squat, they may take that lift one week earlier. So they'd have three weeks of taper. I've even gone so far as to have a five week taper for one of my athletes. He was a 900 pound squatter. So he literally, he needed that much time. And he, he ended up PRing huge at his meet. Then for lighter lifters, they might, they might take their heaviest lift 10 days out. That's probably the closest I will get for a squatter deadlift is 10 days for a bench, maybe seven, but it would really depend on, on like the level of lifter that would be. Um, Taking openers a week out is commonplace for lighter lifters. For stronger lifters, you may have to push that back a few days. And I like I'm I'm saying the words stronger or like not as strong or lighter lifters. And that's a very loose term, simply because I feel that absolute strength is the biggest indicator of how far away you need to peak. Um, and that's purely anecdotal, right? I, I haven't seen any. Any research on, you know, time to peak, because I'm sure that there's not much research being done on powerlifting in specific, but, um, you know, in the, in the old Russian text, they would talk about the super compensation principle. And um, the reality is the more weight you're moving, the longer it takes you to super compensate. And that's just been repeated over time when you are determining that period, because like you said, it, it can be pretty variable. I mean, everything mm -hmm. from like two weeks or 10 days to, you know, five weeks yeah. to, to, to taper an athlete. How, how do you go about, and I mean, you probably don't get this because I would imagine that you'd probably work with a decent amount of high level lifters who have a pretty good record keeping that they kind of bring to you in, in, in the onset of your training. But hypothetically, if you had a new lifter who was, you know, reasonably strong, let's say they were, you know, kind of on the high or intermediate level, they came to you and they're like, Hey, I've got a competition and it's coming in about, you know, four or five months. So it's a reasonable amount of time. Um, how would you go about kind of making those assumptions for, for when you should be doing those things? Four or five months, you get a, you get quite a bit of data on them. You'd be able to, you'd be able to figure it out. And like, I keep little notes for my clients and their spreadsheets of like, you know, when their best performances were, where they set rep maxes or volume PRs on all these things. And we just look at it and, and loosely base how we're going to approach our peak on those numbers. It's never going to be perfect. I shouldn't say it's never. Sometimes you hit home runs off the bat, but sometimes you miss the peak. It happens. Um, the biggest key for me is I would much rather an athlete be too rested than too fatigued when they get to a meet. Like the, the old adage of, availability trumps ability holds true. If you show up to meet beat up to the point where you can't ex like, you can't display your maximal strength. What's the point, right? So I'd rather deload you a little bit too, too long or like I would err on the side of caution is what I'm trying to say, but keeping those records, I don't necessarily think it needs to lie solely on the athlete. Um, but in your discussions with them, you can kind of tease out that information. Like, Hey, like last time you did a meet, how long, how long out did you take your squat? How did you feel? 
you know, uh, were you significantly stronger then or are you significantly stronger now? Are you more stressed now? Are you, has anything in your lifestyle changed? How's your nutrition? Has your body weight gone up or down? These are all things that you can tease out in conversation. You don't necessarily have to have like hard data on. The other thing is as you go through these week by week progressions, you'll get an idea of how this person recovers. Like if they're always complaining about being sore, if they're always, you know, or if they're like, Hey, I, you know, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more. That's probably somebody who has quite good recovery. You might be able to push them a little bit closer to the meat. Um, but at the end of the day, you're really, you're making the best assumption that you can with the information available to you. And uh, as far as I know you, you talked about super compensation and one thing that kind of gets brought up with that a lot of the times is functional overreaching. Is that ever something that you intentionally try to add? Like personally, I, I find that that just kind of happens, but like, I don't know. I mean, you're obviously more experienced coach than myself. And so I just wanted to know if that was something you specifically tried to. I would probably agree, man. I would really probably agree with you. I think it's just kind of something that happens when you're trying to push heavy weights. Um, The funny part is like, I think if you try to force that, it always goes too far. I, I really think you just, if you try to force this functional, like, I've seen, I've seen people like, all right, well, you're going to take your opener for like two doubles. I was like, what the, like, why? Like, why would you take your opener for two doubles? And then the next week be expected to perform at the highest ability. It's like, maybe, maybe your opener is too light. If you can take it for two doubles, that's probably too light. And you're probably hampering yourself and your progress moving forward. So I think that fun, that, that idea of functional overreaching kind of happens on its own, but the ability to super compensate, like, and this is my, probably my biggest argument against like the dynamic undulating periodization or daily undulating periodization model is like how many of the lifters that lift with that strategy, we'll call it hit huge PRs and needs their meat numbers are almost the same, if not a little bit lower than their training numbers. To me, that's not a successful peak. I think back to the peaks I've had, like when I squatted 800 for the first time, the heaviest squat, the heaviest squat I did in training was 750. When I pulled 725, the heaviest deadlift I pulled in training was 675. When I benched 430, the heaviest bench I took was 405 for a double. Like, the concept of super compensation entails that you perform better at the meet because of the work you did leading into it. If I'm showing up to a meet lifting the same as I did in the gym, I might as well stay in the fucking gym. But yeah, no, that, that's a good point. It's, it's pretty interesting. Cause like, um, I know Chad Wesley Smith is someone who's just kind of a bit of a freak. Like he hits like seven to 10% <laughs> higher than his best gym, uh, best gym numbers. And I mean, like squatting 750 and then jumping up to 800 is pretty ridiculous. Uh, especially at that. And I fucking smoked it too. Like, like I, there was a lot more in the tank. What I'm getting at with that is, you know, Chad is a, Chad is, is an outlier in that regard, but 
he carries fatigue in his training because he trains really hard, right? So he's carrying fatigue in his training when he's hitting these numbers. But when you get to the meet, there's no more fatigue. And that's the goal. Like I know equipped lifters, I'm going to throw them under the bus, but I know an equipped lifter in the IPF takes opener a week out. You mean, you mean to tell me that you want to take an 800 pound squat a week out from trying to take a 900 pound squat when the week prior you took another 800 plus pound squat. So yeah, you dropped off your intensity, right? Because if you took a second attempt, say around 830 or 840, and then the next week you went 800, that's a deload, right? We, de- we deloaded, albeit like 2.5%, but you still deloaded. And then you want to, you think that's going to be enough to super compensate, man. If, if, if I was the coach, I'd be like, Hey, you're going to take your heaviest lift. Then you're going to take your opener for a single. And then the next week you're going to squat raw, like do something lighter because that next week, when you get into the gym, you're going to be hungry for it. Like mentally you're going to be ready because you're going to be like chomping at the bit to get back under that barbell. And why not play to that mentality? Like, I don't want you to go in and be like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. Like the whole, uh, that functional overreaching you spoke about. Yeah, do it. But the whole point of functional overreaching is that you allow yourself to recover from it. Right. You dig that hole so deep that you, you know, slingshot out of it. You build a half pipe and just. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I had, um, I have an athlete that I'm working with right now. I don't think we haven't been working together that long. It's like coming up on three months, right? Like that. And he was utilizing kind of that undulating model where he'd do three up one down kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. we do it every, every fourth week. Right. And I just told him, I was like, look, let's just see where your limits actually are because right now, 25% of your, your training year is not developmental, right? It's, right. it's just recovery, which is important, but it's not pushing you forward. And um, we ended up using kind of like you were saying earlier, kind of an alternating model of like a high, low, high, low. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of a built in kind of part of the program. And we got up to, I think 11 weeks and he was still hitting like, you know, cause we, we also would use those testers of like rep PRs and things like that. And every second or third week he was just hitting him more and more and more. And he was like, man, I feel really beat up. And I was like, okay, but you're still getting like way better and it's still moving really fast. And even though like it's, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, when, when you're like, Hey, how did that feel? And they're like, Oh, it felt heavy. It's like, well, no shit. It felt heavy because it's heavy weight. But like, you know, it's, it's almost like, it's not necessarily like the emotion that you experience. That's part of it, but it's also like, how did it go? Did you feel really good with it? How did it look all those things? And so I, I definitely think that that's one of those things that's kind of not necessarily appreciated when you're training. It's like, Oh, don't want to get too fatigued. And it's like, man, even, I mean, I, I mean, a post about this. You, the one you I saw, yeah, it was really funny. <laughs> yeah. My rib is fucked. My back is messed up. And it's like, but I'm still getting in good, hard training because you just have to do it. You, you either have to do it or quit the fucking sport. Right. And, and, and it's like, you know, I don't know. Anyways, there's my rant. No, 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 no. I, I get where you're coming from. And, and I, I, I come at it from two different angles. So my first, my first few years competing, I was still a strength coach. So I was on my feet all day, like, uh, you know, 15 hour coaching days type thing some days. So deloading would happen 
it, automatically. I would just miss a couple of days here and there. You know, I, I wasn't able to train as frequently as I wanted to with as much intensity as I wanted to. Then once I got out of strength coaching and I was more able to plan my days better and manage my fatigue, I don't think I deloaded for like three years. I didn't have to. I, I was, I was, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down. If I was really fatigued, I just lifted lighter and did a shit ton of work. But I was still working hard. Every session was hard. And then I got hurt. And then I kept getting hurt. And now I've been hurt for the better part of four years. Within those four years, I've managed to make a lot of improvements. I've set a couple PRs here and there. But the fact of the matter is I'm not in a position now where I can keep pushing, 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 pushing. So my question to you about your lifter is like, how old is this kid? Like how, how strong is he? Yeah, no, no, no. The, the point wasn't necessarily to say that you don't need any of that stuff. The point was right, right, right. that uh, like a lot of the times fatigue is sometimes met with concern where it's like, oh, I'm concerned. It's like, Hey, your performance is going really well. We don't necessarily need to stop it yet. You know? And like, yep. you know, when we see those kind of slow, performance uh, uh regressions that's when it's like okay now this is the time to to kind of do that and then we can know intuitively like when that's going to happen and then even just through exercise variation we can unburden your joints and the specific force vectors you're kind of training in so you don't get those overuse injuries because you don't feel your tendons getting worn down you might feel your, oh, I do. your hip. <laughs> you, don't, you don't feel a tendon until it blows off and then it's like oh shit right so that's what i was getting at it's like you know you might be accumulating this fatigue you might still be performing really well but for me it's like in my own training paradigm as it stands now i'm gonna back off before i think i need it once i start to feel like my joints are a little bit achy i'll back off because i know I, when i was performing at the highest level like you know, I mentioned my lifts, but when I did those lifts, they were top 20 all time in two different weight classes. Now they're nowhere close to that. And I know that even like I was about, I was supposed to compete next weekend uh, down in Miami before all the, the closures and stuff, but I was probably going to, well, I was probably, I was absolutely going to exceed those numbers. That's nowhere near the top level in the world. I know that I know I'm not pursuing the top performance in the world. What I'm pursuing is personal excellence, personal development, uh, improving my abilities as a coach, because I'm still training competing. I'm not willing to take the, the risks associated with pushing, 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 pushing. So I'm going to prioritize deloads ahead of pushing. Now, that's not to say that I could con couldn't continue pushing. It's just that's what I'm choosing to do. Everything that we do with regards to our own training paradigm needs to be a value judgment. And to make a value judgment, you need to take all the information available to you into consideration. For me, my value judgment for myself might be different than a value judgment that one of my clients makes, right? I have plenty of clients, like I have a guy who will likely pull close to 830 at his next meet. I deload his deadlift every third week, but he has no idea because every deal, every deadlift day is hard, but I still deload him. His deload's just different than other people's deloads and it's what works. So he hasn't actually quote unquote deloaded his deadlift in months. And I, you know, he, you kind of, uh, I think Jordan shallow has been making it popular to say like, you know, you grind up the vegetables and the spaghetti sauce. 
And you can do that to a certain extent with the way that you program like that one, like that week A, week B emphasis, you delay, you delay the, the accumulation of fatigue in specific patterns. Um, you can go uh, heavy, light, heavy, light on your squat and deadlift. So that's what I do right now. So I'll squat heavy one week, I'll pull heavy the next week. That allows me to, to uh, accumulate fatigue a little bit slower in those movements. But the reality is what you're trying to accomplish, I don't think it needs to be black and white. And I think the, the less black and white it is, the more room for, for art within the science. Um, the better you as a coach can kind of use the tools in your toolbox, right? Like each athlete should be different. Even, even coming back to the, the point that you were saying about like the deloads kind of built into the program. I just kind of think that that's good programming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I know I definitely pushed really, really hard for a long time. And then I had, I had, two serious back injuries in my life. One was from Olympic weightlifting when I had a coach mm -hmm. um, and I just really messed my back up. And then the other one was when I was my coach. So ever since I've been powerlifting, I've been self-coached and I would just push and push and push and push. And I had a really bad back injury and I was like wearing a back brace and on crutches for like a year mm -hmm. and that sucked. And then after that, I was like, okay, I've got to make sure I recover. And then since then I've been fine. I've had like, little things like my shoulder will pull or, you know, my rib, but it doesn't stop me from training and it's not anything serious. It's just something yeah. a lot of the times we'll kind of heal on its own. But, um, but yeah, it, 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 sometimes it definitely takes like running into those situations till you're like, Oh, this is a real thing. Like, you know, you read about it in the textbooks, but then you're like, Oh, this is, this is actually real. And this can actually happen to me. You know? Well, if you want to push your body to any semblance of its limits, it's going to hurt. Like, the the idea of pain-free training at all times i'm sorry if i'm like spitting in your oatmeal but you're not going to be pain-free nothing about lifting 800 pounds is pain-free like I, I remember i was talking with joe sullivan one day we did a an ig live this was a couple years ago probably now and uh he he was like did anyone ever ask you what it feels like to squat 800? And I was like, yeah, of course, all the time. He's like, what do you think it feels like? I was like, it feels like I'm dying. And he's like, he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, man, it feels like I'm dying. When I'm sitting in the bottom of an 800 pound squat, it feels like I'm dying. But when I stand up, it feels like I'm the most alive I've ever been in my whole life. And that's why we power lift. We don't power lift to avoid pain, right? We power lift to have that feeling of being alive. Yeah, I like that actually. You know, power with avoid pain. Um, yeah. So, so, anyways, uh, <laughs> that's, I digress. No, no. I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting tangent because I, I've I've met a lot of people, and I think this is, it's in some cases a really huge limiting factor where people's aversion to really hard work, and I don't know if it's necessarily an aversion as it is a lack of consistent exposure. They don't know where those limits are. And so anytime they start pushing, it's like, oh, well, I feel a burn in my biceps, so that's enough, I should stop. But it's like, no, 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 you need to keep going. And it's like, have you ever actually failed? You know, have you ever actually missed a lift? And I'm not saying that's something you should pursue to do, but if you've never done it, it's likely you're not pushing hard enough. If 
if you're never sore and like, you know, Mike Isertel, um, yeah. you know how he talks about like uh, muscle, muscle sore, like DOMS. Yep. You know, and it's like, everyone says DOMS isn't a good indicator of, of progress, but the way he says it, he's like, look, if you're never sore and you're not growing, you're not training hard enough. If you're always sore and you're not growing, you're probably training too hard. And so like from that perspective, it ends up being a decent proxy in some cases. And I think, I think, you know, effort can kind of be gauged in a very similar way where it's like, if you're never, if you've never failed, if you've never, you know, kind of flirted with that line of like, I think I might die if I do this rep, you know, like then I don't know. Sometimes you're probably just like undercutting yourself and, and not necessarily pushing to, to the limits that you really could. So I have, a, I have a hilarious story about that. So this brings up the idea of like RPE, right? So we train, I like using RPEs. I think it's a fantastic way to give your clients agency, to provide them with some decision-making authority, uh, to put their progress into their own hands to a certain extent. It's a very good teacher. The problem is, and exactly what you brought up, is they have no idea what a 10 is. No idea. So when I was younger and I wasn't afraid of losing my job, I had this thing that we used to do with the soccer team and we would call it, we would call them widow makers. So you'd have your body weight on the bar on a squat. You'd walk it out. We'd have two spotters on each side and one behind. And then the spotters would take off the J hooks. No J hooks, no safeties, you and your body weight on the bar. And you had to squat it as many times as you could you figured out really quick what an RPE 10 was. And the problem is, is people think like, oh, that was a seven. It wasn't a seven. If, you, if an, RP, an RPE of seven is fucking hard because that eight, that nine, that 10, those are grinders. Those are barely moving. You talk about bar velocity, you can move a rep at 0.22 or something like that meters per second. That's really slow. Right. Um, so something that I like doing, especially with younger lifters who've never used RPE before and they want to, you know, you need to know what a 10 feels like. Stick them on a hack squat, stick them on a leg press, something where they're not afraid to hurt themselves. And, uh, and you know, that, they, that has like a built-in safety pin in it and have them do some reps to failure. It's a really quick way to teach that. Um, and I'm not advocating that you do widow makers with any of your clients. I don't think it's safe at all. And, and I probably should have lost my job when I was doing them, but the kids loved them. Nobody got hurt and it was great. Um, but finding creative ways to teach your athletes how to, how to strain, right? If you're, if your only gauge is this subjective metric that you don't know what the limit of is, you are going to be undercutting your progress for sure. Yeah, no, I, I definitely like that uh, that idea of kind of finding those limits. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm a really big fan of like having developmental exercises also kind of sort of play as, as a tester as well, like uh, utilizing a rep max and then being like, okay, I can see that you had like four more left in the tank. So we need to bump that up by like maybe 30 pounds next time. Mm -hmm. it, you know, you can kind of give them feedback and then the next time when they do attempt uh, or, or select an attempt, they're like, Hey, you know, I know you said this, I don't think I can do it, but I don't know. I'm going to try it. Do you think this is okay? And I'll be like, yep, you're good. Let's see. And then they, you know, lo and behold, they do it. And I think the more exposures you get to that, 
in in an intentional way, I think the better in some cases, because it just makes you one more confident and, and I think definitely realizing that you haven't even tapped your potential is a really, really big thing. And I've told this story probably a million times, but like first time I ever trained at the strength edge, I walked in the door and Bryce was unracking 804 for a squat and he was equipped. I didn't know what equipment was at the time. I just saw a fuck ton of weight on the bar and I was like, Oh, I guess I'm a piece of shit. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> And then within like three months, I had been, I'd been like plateaued for probably about a year. And then within three months, I hit like a 40 pound PR on my squat, on my deadlift, and then like a 30 pound PR on my bench. And it was just like hundred percent just up here. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't pushing hard enough. And so I definitely think that that, uh, I had one of those moments too. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. When I, uh, when I moved back to Ottawa, so I was living in, in Florida and I had to move or sorry, I was living in Pittsburgh and I had to move back to Ottawa to renew my student visa before moving back to Florida. And I went to train with Jay Nira. And um, do you know who Jay is? Jay who? Nira. No, I don't think so. Okay, so Jay Nira and Cade Weber were like formerly sponsored by Animal. And they were like in the first group of powerlifters that Animal sponsored. Jay at the time was the number one 220 lifter in the world. And Cade was the number one 242 lifter in the world. And Willie was a former number one 181 in the world. And we were all in the same gym. Mediocre then. Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty good. <laughs> um, so I walked, I walked in my best squat at the time was like 600 pounds. And um, Jay looks like uh, he looks like a barbarian. Okay. He's like 240 pounds, long hair, um, He's like half Filipino, half white. So he's like tan skin. He literally looks like a barbarian. He's chewing on his headphone strings, bobbing his head. He's got a, a, a toque over his eyes and he's swearing at himself under his breath, walking around. He walks out the back door, pukes, comes back in and rips 700 pounds for like a set of five on the deadlift. And I was like, I need to be here. <laughs> this is where I need to be. And that was like my first exposure to like real powerlifting. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like definitely for the longest time I trained on my own. Um, yeah. And then I started training with uh, a buddy of mine, Darrell. You, you think yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a good dude. And so since I started training with him, that's been really, really helpful. Cause like my squat and bench are like here and his is here. And then his deadlift is here. <laughs> mine's, mine's the opposite. Crazy deadlifter, man. He's, <laughs> yeah. like a four, he's, a, he's like a diesel engine. He like moves every weight at above 500 the same speed, but the bar keeps getting heavier. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like he'll pull 600 and you're like, ooh, I don't know how much more he's got. And then he's doing 805 for a double and every rep just looks the exact same speed. And you're like, how many are you supposed to do? He's like, oh, I got 10. And I'm like, and that was one? Holy shit. <laughs> and then he just, yeah, just keeps doing it. It's crazy. But um, uh, getting getting back to I guess the initial, yeah, it's all good. initial topic, yeah, um, yeah. When you're when you're doing a deload, um, mm -hmm. when you have a planned deload, do you ever vary the exercises? Um, yes. When okay, yeah. Can, can you? Kind I of do for sure. What that process looks like and why you might do that? Yeah. So what I might do. Um, so there's two different ways I tend to do it uh, because I I use more of a concurrent model. Uh, I do use a lot of very, I shouldn't say a lot. I, I use a, a good amount of variation in my exercise selection um, to achieve the goal. Now I use the deload as an opportunity sometimes to revisit the competition movement. Uh, 
So if say we've been on a safety bar for a number of weeks, we'll use the deload, we'll use some lower percentages, but we'll use that, we'll do that comp squat. And we'll make sure that, you know, if we're, we're using that safety bar to solidify our upper back position, maybe reinforce our torso, get the quads a little stronger. And then in that deload, we revisit the comp squat and it starts looking better at, at the same percentages. We know we're in a good spot. We know we're progressing the way we need to. So I use it as kind of a test retest, revisit the comp movement and the deload, go back to the variation and the training. The other opportunity you might have is to do the exact opposite. So for myself in a meat prep, what I have done in the past is I will use the comp squat to build my comp squat. But then when I deload, I'll use a safety bar, a cambered bar, something to offload my shoulders because I, my elbows and, and biceps tend to get beat up by squatting low bar. Cause these are quite a low, low bar position and my hands are quite narrow. So my arms get beat up. So I'll use the, I'll use the deload as an opportunity to, you know, relieve myself of orthopedic strain, so to speak. Um, but that's two different ways. The other, the other is to use the deload as an intro week to the next block uh, or the next microcycle or mesocycle. So if you've been using certain assistance lifts during that first mesocycle, you use the deload to introduce those new assistance lifts um, at lower, lower intensities so that you can get a feel for them. That way, when you actually start the mesocycle, you don't have to go through an adjustment period trying to relearn a pattern. You've already had an exposure to it and you're ready to actually load it. As far as like, um, maybe like an off season or something like that, uh, how, how do you go about just letting the tissues fully regenerate? Because, you know, I kind of mentioned jokingly earlier about your muscles will feel damaged, your hips and your everything will feel sore, but your tendons and ligaments and some of the other soft tissues are still pretty banged up and, and sometimes do need a little bit more time to recover than the muscles. And so how do you go about um, ensuring that, that that recovery does occur either during the off season or just kind of during the, the, the training process? Like what are some of those strategies? So I would say that I don't necessarily consider that in my approach for the simple fact that I believe people underplay the importance of the general level of fitness. So most people don't take into account that all recovery is aerobic. And when I say that, I mean that in the most specific sense that when we regenerate our fuel substrates, that is through an aerobic process. So that means your recovery between sets, your recovery between sessions is all enhanced by having a better aerobic capacity. Does that mean that you have to dedicate specific blocks of your training to developing aerobic capacity? No, we're powerlifters. Our goal is to, uh, to display maximal strength. But through modification of rest periods, through uh, more lifestyle um, interventions, such as you know, increasing your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, walking more, moving more, um, having more variability in the planes of motion in which you're moving. These are all things that will allow you to recover better between sets. So the reason that I don't necessarily consider, you know, tissue specific recovery is all my athletes are in great shape because they train really fucking hard. So as soon as I just decrease how hard they're training, they recover very well. Um, 
I'm a big believer that no matter what the emphasis of the work that you're trying to do, the RPE should be, should be high. Like we're trying, we're trying to train hard. Right. So um, it doesn't matter if the weights are heavy or the weights are light, we should be pushing ourselves. The other thing that we know is, you know, when you look at tendons and not necessarily ligaments, but tendon strength is enhanced by um, higher repetition training. So some of the work that I do is, is in that higher rep range, like 25 to 30 repetitions. And we know that hypertrophy takes place over a wide variety of rep ranges, as long as you're within a reps and reserve of two. So as long as you are lifting in a variety of rep ranges, as long as you are pushing yourself within a reps and reserve of two, and as long as you are making your heart beat a little bit faster throughout the day, you're going to be aerobically fit enough to maximally recover from training. It seems a bit counterintuitive to say, oh, you're not recovering from training. You should, you should move more. But movement is the best medicine when it comes to recovery, right? The more blood we can, the more blood we can pump through the body, uh, the more insulin sensitive we can make the tissue so that we're assimilating nutrients to a better, uh, a better degree. Moving more means you're recovering better. So I, I, I would say that that's where, that's where my focus would be as opposed to on tissue specific recovery. No, and that makes sense. And so as far as that goes, then at what points would you implement some of those strategies um, utilizing those higher rep ranges? And I'm assuming, obviously you're not doing that for like deadlifts, like 30. No, no, no. More like, more like my, my tertiary type, type exercises. So talk about uh, dumbbell, even dumbbell benching, dumbbell rows, uh, leg extensions, leg curls, um, more so single joint, uh, isolation exercises, face pulls, rear delts, things like that, calf raises, because um, powerlifters should train calves for sure. Um, but that's probably another discussion. The uh, you, you prioritize those types of rep ranges where they would be safest. Like I would. The other piece inherent in that is there is new research that is coming out to say higher rep ranges are more CNS fatiguing. Right. So if higher rep ranges are more CNS fatiguing, it doesn't make sense that I would include them to save my joints because I'd be saving my joints at the, exp ex the uh, saving my joints at the expense of my CNS, which is more, more quote unquote expensive. So how do I accommodate that? I do it on more single joint movements where lots of load cannot be handled. So how, how do you actually adjust your, uh, your, your accessories and your tertiary exercises as you progress through that kind of higher volume into your strength and your peak. I just drop them down. So like I use I typically use a weekly number of meaningful sets. So as you know, say, we're early on in an off season, very little of the training will be that comp lift. And then most of the, most of the uh, adaptive reserve, will be allocated to the accessory movements, those things that we can use to build hypertrophy. There, you know, some people would argue that you could do the competition movement for more volume, uh, more intra-set volume, so higher number of reps. I'm very big on the neurological integrity of the main movement. So I typically will not train that to high levels of fatigue simply because I don't want to degrade my pattern. I want to, you know, strength is a skill. So we want as much of repeatability of expo, um, of execution on that main lift. So we use our assistance lifts to build muscle. As we progress through the training, 
I'm going to swap some of those sets of assistance work to main work. And as I do that, I adjust the rest of the assistance work because obviously a set of squats is going to be more fatiguing than a set of dumbbell bench press. So the exchange can't be one to one. Um, we might start off with maybe four or five assistance lifts. And then by the end, by the end of the meat prep, we're down to one or two. All right. So it's, it's a, it's a shifting of priority, knowing that I only have a certain amount of adaptive reserve available to me. What is one thing that you found most people get wrong that you kind of want to bring up or you, you would be okay with bringing up? <laughs> uh, for me, it's the D that the deload should be a week off. Like I really, I really think that people, people take away too much. Like there's no reason why I need to drop my intensity by 25%. There's no reason why I need to drop my volume in half, right? Even a slight decrease in volume and intensity, especially, you know, in an off season, that'll, that'll net you a really good recovery to allow you to continue to train. Um, and the other piece with that is, is if we're changing the movements to give yourself an intro week to the next block, just by changing the intent, changing the movement, you're going to recover a little bit better, right? You could argue that novelty would in, in, novelty is a, is a good in, sorry. Novelty makes you a bit more sore. It has a good correlation to DOMS, but it doesn't, it's because you're lifting lighter and it's an intro week. You mitigate that to a certain extent and you want to uh, accumulate as much fatigue because you've offloaded the patterns that you've previously overloaded. The reality is your deload doesn't have to be very much of a deload to get what you want out of it. And if it does, I would argue that you went too far with your training. Yeah. I think that last part, especially is a really important point because I've, I've heard that as a counter argument as well. And I'm usually suspect of, of the total volume and intensity of the training that kind of took place beforehand. Um, we're kind of coming up on that uh, hour 15 hour 20 mark whatever and on yeah, your time um where can people find you so you can find me on instagram at paul oneid p-a-u-l-o-n-e-i-d um you can also find me at coaches corner university uh it's a new website we just launched the goal here is to bridge the gap between a kinesiology or health sciences education and the practical knowledge you would need to have in order to coach someone in person or online. Um, I'm involved in that with uh, Tony Montgomery and uh, the Instagram for that is at coaches corner U or www.coachescorneru.com. You can find all my coaching information at masterathletic.com or on Instagram at masterathleticperformance. And I also have an app called MetroLife. Uh, which is a lifestyle tracking app that helps you uh, track your uh, behaviors and habits and see how that they how they affect your mental and physical well-being. You can find that at metrilife underscore on Instagram or at www.metrilife.com. Awesome. So definitely go check that stuff out. It's all going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Paul, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was, it was a really awesome chat. Uh, super interesting hearing about your process to peaking, deloads, and just kind of individualizing that whole process. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.